0: Welcome to The Money Huddle, a podcast that discusses financial topics for families, retirees, and small business owners. Hosted by Michael Baker and Ross Marinell, All opinions expressed by Michael and Ross or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and may not reflect the opinions of Advisory Alpha. The podcast recording is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Advisory Alpha may maintain positions and securities discussed on the program.
1: Welcome back to the money huddle. We're here for another week and man, we've got a lot to share with you today on this show. Ross, what's up, buddy? How are you doing? Hey, Michael. Good to, good to be with you, man. We got some fun topics today. So you ready to dive in? I'm, I'm ready to dive in. Let's get going.
0: So, you know, we always try and have a little bit of a, a sports theme and uh, like to talk about different uh, sports figures and, and popular people. And so I came across a really interesting idea. This was shared, um, in my feed this week. And it, it basically came back and said, um, it was kind of comparing what people's jobs were versus where they made the bulk of their money or had a great investment. And so it, here, here was the, what came over the feed. It said, Steve jobs made more money from Disney than from Apple it said, George Clooney made more money selling tequila than acting. George Foreman made more money selling grills than boxing. And Dr. Dre made more money from beats than making music. And, it's obviously that is you know we know uh, uh, what those um, results were right like the George Foreman everybody knows the George Foreman grill of it course. just became a huge it, I mean they were everywhere probably what ten years ago fifteen years ago
1: they were all over the place for sure I mean I yeah and it's 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 kind of astonishing to think that he made more money selling those grills than he did boxing because. He was
0: in some of the most iconic fights uh, in boxing history, sure, and was a fantastic boxer. I mean, became what world world champion twice because he kind of ended yeah. his career and then came back because because of some bad investments. Because he basically was broke, and he started boxing again and became
1: heavyweight champion at age forty five. Um, and I so I remember that fight. I remember that fight he he was fighting uh, I think Michael Moore Michael Moore um the guy's name and he and people like you know he took the fight Michael Moore was the heavyweight champ and right. a lot of people thought like what are we doing you're fighting an old man and George Foreman was like y'all don't understand he's like I, you know and I mean and, and Foreman was always known as a big puncher and he had a always had a puncher's chance and sure enough like he weathered like getting beat on for a little bit and then he just clubbed Michael Moore and everyone's <laughs> so- like well there you go
0: so I thought this was, it, this was a funny backstory. I did not know this. Okay, So I started doing a little research on how did the George Foreman get to represent this grill. And believe it or not, back in, this was in the mid-90s, 1994, um, George Foreman was, was regaining popularity. But um, there was also a very, very popular wrestler from the World Wrestling Federation by the name of Hulk Hogan. Everybody remembers Hulk. Hulkamania, right? Do you know Hulk's business manager gave him three options for a product to endorse? One was a blender. One was a meatball maker. And the other was a grill. And you know what, what Hulk shows? He didn't pick the grill. I know that. The Hulkamania meatball maker. And he passed oh, on man. the grill. And the business agent shared a client. That client was George Foreman. George Foreman agreed to represent the grill, and ended up making something reported over two hundred and fifty million dollars. Wow! Wow! So the big picture story. We just want—I wanted to share that because one, obviously, these these individuals never really quit their day job, right? I mean, George Clooney's still acting. Um, you know, George Foreman was boxing at age forty-five. Um, Dr. Dre, I'm sure, is still making music, has been making music, but they had these side businesses, these opportunities that came into their world that they capitalized on and made enormous money. And so the thinking is, you know, never quit your day job, but keep your eyes open for other income opportunities and areas that interest you, that you have a particular skill in, and that just become um, available to you.
1: Or you could just be a heavyweight boxing champion and get endorsement deals. It's like either way, right? Whichever path makes more <laughs> sense for you, you go that way.
0: But I guess big—you you never know where that next opportunity is going to lead and what it might make for you know, and what
1: your outcome might be. No question. Well, I will. I'll, I will take your your talking points and I'll, I'll transition us into this segment. Uh, that you want to call investing is hard, right? So we want to yes, start. I doing wanna a start
0: l- a recurring segment. <laughs>
1: investing is hard, um, and, and by no means um, are we trying to throw shade at anybody. But we want to we want to teach and also um, enlighten folks about you know just just the perils that come with you know investing and, and money and all the different emotions and bi- biases and everything that comes with. Uh, investing in capital markets. And so uh, I'll kick this segment off with, I'm actually doing some graduate work right now and I have to write a paper. I have to do a book report. And um, one of the books that I've chosen is a book I read several years ago. And it's a book written by Gary Belsky and Thomas Gilovich. Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes. This is one of the first books I read when I was getting into behavioral finance and kind of kicked that off uh, for me in a big way. And um, one, of the, one of the passages in here is, is, you can know too much. Knowledge is power, but too much information can be destructive. Studies have shown that investors who tune out the majority of financial news fare better than those who subject themselves to an endless stream of information, much of it meaningless. And I just thought, man, is that not like a perfect summation of what we're dealing with right now? I mean, this book was written years ago. And if you think about how plugged in, we all, majority of people are, right? I can't say we all, but majority of people are plugged into two to three different social media platforms. Um, My parents' generation, probably your parents' generation, they don't do social media as much as they do, like, just have the cable news of their choice running in the background. It's just like constant bombardment of information. And how that does not enable us to be, we think, we think it's enabling us to be informed and to make better decisions. But the, the data shows that it does the exact opposite. It helps us, it makes us more emotional and where we make worse decisions. Right. It, it increases the impulsiveness, right, of investing
0: decisions when the maybe the best course of action is just to be still. And yeah, there's, there's noise and there's... Um, there's constant information being bombarded on the screen to create sort of a decision, right? Or to, or to get you thinking and to move you emotionally to another place when maybe we just kind of take a deep breath, think about where, why we're investing in a particular business, what that business does, are we still comfortable with how it's operating and what it, how it produces money and kind of put all that aside. I mean, we referenced a 200-year-old book last podcast was talking I about behavioral investment in this and it doesn't change, right? We don't are the behavioral patterns are consistent, even though it's a completely different era and a different uh, way that we're investing and getting knowledge. The outcome of how we make decisions is still very consistent or over, over decades.
1: No, I would agree with that. And, you know, I think about this political spectrum and and it seems like everything just continues to push us to and, I, and I'm guilty of this. Uh, most of us, I think if we're being, you know, objective about our own, our own selves, everything is pushing to like this binary good versus evil, red versus blue, you know, uh, market, we're going to take the market off. The market's going to crash and crumble and we're losing discernment and really being able to kind of think through like next level thinking on multiple fronts. And and, and so our brains We're just not wired to do that cognitive heavy lifting. So we shift to like our, our defaults, you know, our, our little heuristics, our rules of thumb, our, our, all of our things, which data continually shows us, they short circuit our success. And so that's, that's where I wanted to lead with. And uh, I think you had a, had a couple of funny uh, ideas to share here. So we'll, we'll buckle up and go for that ride. So there was some,
0: some honest posting that happened uh, through my feed this week where uh, one individual just kind of made the the claim. They said, hey, listen, um, investing is hard, right? This is the segment. Um, they had talked about buying AMD, that's a stock, AMD stock, at $9 a share, sold it for $20 a share, felt great, uh, doubled their investment, and now it's trading at $83 a share. Someone else chimed in and said, well, hey, that's okay. I bought Netflix at $12 a share, sold it for $30. You know, a, a nice profit, right? Eighteen dollars share profit, and of course, now Netflix is trading for five hundred forty-three dollars a share. It takes right. a lot of commitment to be to stay invested through that type of enormous return, and not get shook or not think the end is imminent that it can continue to go. Uh, so, Michael, there's a couple of there uh, out there. Do you have one? Any investment regret that you go, man? I had this, and I was right there.
1: I, I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, so yeah, for sure, I can share. I have I have two things that come to top of mind. No, number one is I can still to this day picture myself sitting at my desk um, at the at the firm we used to work at, and this was years ago, but seeing the the news breaking news about this new internet money called Bitcoin. And it was like now available. And I just kind of turned my nose up at that. And normally I'm like, you know, I, I, let me just throw a few bucks at it. Just see what happens. Um And I've, you know, I mean, we all can, all of us have done the math. I mean, a 500, a thousand dollar investment in Bitcoin when it was, you know, seven cents per would be, you know, insane wealth at this point. In st- so, uh, you know, so I remember that. And then um, I also, um, I tend not to look at IPOs at all. I, I, you know, most of the time I, I, especially in this environment last couple of years, um, I tend to ward off looking at IPOs, but I, I did put a little bit of money in Facebook when Facebook went public. And Which was like $40 a share. Which, yeah, it, I mean, I, I, that was the price it, that was the price point that I actually was able to buy some shares at, um, and then you know it went down. I think to seventeen, eighteen a share, and I thought, you know, got duped again, and so I, I just took my lumps and and I exited that. Thankfully, it wasn't a large. It was more of a dipping my toe in the pond. I didn't put a, a significant amount of money in there, but I took you know instead of just saying, well, let's just see how this goes, I started looking at the company like, how are they going to make money. This is dumb people don't do anything but argue and post videos on Facebook. Like this is just kind of silly. And, you know, obviously if I'd have held it, I would have been, uh, it would have well, been a nice
0: investment. So $17 to uh, two sixty four. As I say, well, you know, I think Bitcoin is one that we probably all have some people in our lives that, that um, work early to the Bitcoin game and just saw, sort of used it as almost like a novelty, right? I mean, several, several years ago, where it wasn't uncommon, if you, especially if you had a technology background and you were familiar with how to store it, you weren't you weren't nervous about trading it or being duped or taking advantage of. Then um, it was pretty frequent that people would would just do it for fun, right? So they would bu- use it to buy um, any kind of low level product or ser- service or sale or trade with somebody uh, that right. they wanted to. And I remember having a friend that uh, at the time probably owned some. I mean, probably traded somewhere between fifty and one hundred Bitcoin. And it doesn't seem like much. I mean, at the time, like we were kind of chatting before, I was like, that's almost like going to the casino and carrying around, you know, some casino chips. I mean, You, you gave $100, right. you got $100 worth of chips, you walked around the casino, you threw them around, you knew that at any point in time, you could walk back to the cashier and get your money back. And that's really what it was kind of used. It, the price wasn't moving that much, and so you didn't have a lot of concern over over using some to buy anything because it was basically worth what you were buying it for. And you didn't know. I mean, nobody knew that it was going to
1: explode and become this, whatever you want to call it, store of value. Or only uh, only the truest of believers thought that. right. You know, and and I would say the jury is still out. For a ton of very smart people who are not convinced on on Bitcoin, but you know that's a. Do you have a story? What's but anyway, your, what's no, hundred uh, Bitcoin your is story?
0: is worth one point one million dollars today. I'm like ah, I can know. you imagine just the? You yeah. can't even think about it, right? You just have to block it out of your out of your memory. No, I didn't think I couldn't. I was kind of going back through the the memory banks of of trading activity. There was. not wasn't anything it, that really stick out to me. I'm sure I'll have that moment um, before long, but uh, moving on. So that's investing is hard this week. Never beat yourself up. There's a lot of folks out there that have made uh, a return and, and left money on the table.
1: But this is you know one of the things i will, I will just uh, you know book in that conversation with is saying you know this is one of the areas where I believe I truly believe the value of an advisor and and the reason being is every one person of us, every person has their lived experience, but advisors have the shared knowledge of lived experiences across you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands of investment stories and collectively that wisdom compounds over year after year after year where, you know, it's not to say that you specifically as an investor can't learn these lessons over time, but our period of learning and wisdom accumulation is condensed considerably because we're dealing with this day in, day out, day in, day out and hearing all different types of tales and investment stories, planning stories. And, you know, and so and, and that collective wisdom benefits clients just just from having someone that they can trust and they objectively can talk through different decisions and help them make choices. That's just my view on that. So next up, next up, um, uh, you, were, you were telling me before, you know, before we were talking about the show, you're saying that, you know, you, you saw an interesting tweet come out this week about uh, JP Morgan. And I think this is this is indicative of the way that our economy is shaping and it kind of dovetails with some of the jobs ideas and and conversations we were having over the last week.
0: Yeah. So JP Morgan um, Asset Management puts together a a pretty good slide deck. And this particular slide that I'm looking at focused on uh, what they call sector share of GDP employment and S&P 500. And I want to hone in on the technology sector. And so, As we know, the technology sector represents a pretty large portion of the S&P 500. Um, As of the print of this, which was September 2020, um, they calculated the technology sector representing 39% of the S&P 500 value. But conversely, if you look at the share of employment, it was 2%. So it has enormous value recognizable names, right? Household names at this point and a very slim percentage of our actual employment is coming right. from that. And whoo,
1: go for it. Well, I, I, you know, I think that speaks to just the power of technology and how it, it speeds up um, so many things and creates, a, it allows efficiencies to create where you where in the past you needed people you don't necessarily need that human um, capital to to operate, and so one of the things that came out this past week um, that I just read it was a, a part of the um, economic thing that that First Trust puts out each week with tracking of the coronavirus, and it was uh, and part of that it said a recent survey by Cisco of uh, one thousand five hundred and sixty nine business executives. Knowledge workers and others who are responsible for employee environments in the post-COVID era concluded that working from home is, quote, the new normal, with over 90 percent of respondents saying they won't return to the office full time even after the pandemic is over. And so you can thank technology for that type of disruption. Now, I think 90 percent is probably high. Um, I think they'll they'll probably be, you know, there's massive disruption happening right now. I think there'll be some settlement, you know, and 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 that will those numbers will will come back down because I think obviously there're going to be people that that can manage themselves very effectively at home and there're going to be people that they probably need some structure, you know, just just the routine of going to the office, being present, doing your work. But I think there's going to be this um growing segment of employment where there's flexibility where you can work remotely but maybe you have to be in the office once or twice a month for specific meetings. And I was having a conversation the other day and the two things that I was saying to someone was number 1 is can you imagine how this will unlock people's geographic locations for where they work? If you can find jobs where you can work remotely, you no longer have to live in the city where the headquarters is. You can work, you know, you know in rural communities, you can work in the suburb, you know, you can live in the suburbs, you don't have to be locked into a location just because of your employment. And then number two is, I've been saying this, I feel like jobs are starting to flatline in the recovery. And I think it's because a lot of these jobs that are, you know, that are being that have that were moved out or immediately left, companies have had to downsize and they've had to become very efficient to survive. And there's going to be technology that gets put in place of some of these workers, and some of these workers won't get go won't get to go back to the type of job they were doing previously. Right. I
0: this story is being written right now as we speak, and we don't know how the, it's going to end yet because there's um, a seismic shift in what could happen within the economy. For example, we could here locally in a uh, you know a suburb of Charlotte, North Carolina, we could be- benefit temporarily from an influx of people, right? Um, because it's a, uh, you know, we're, we're, especially for retiree age, you know, retirement age folks who are on a fixed income, who aren't working any longer, right. They don't need the proximity to a particular corporation or job can choose where they want to live. Right. And do you want to live in a state where you're paying $10,000 in property tax a year or 3000 in property tax a year? Do Absolutely. you, you, know, you want to live in a state that is taxing you for social security income or one that's not? And those decisions become pretty simple. But what you alluded to and what's and what is potentially going to come on the horizon is working professionals leaving. And when working professionals start to leave and flee to low tax states or better living conditions, you want to live in a, you know in near a, a coast or whatever that might be, I think this is a migration we haven't really seen yet in obviously high tax states that are having budget issues are, we could see this snowball and I'm not really sure how this is going to end. And I'm nervous very much so about some of those areas being losing working professionals that can have the freedom now to move.
1: I think it's starting. And the reason I say that, I'll give you an. I'll give you some anecdotal boots on the ground evidence. Okay, so this morning I was over at uh, Doctor Black's office, get my chiropractic adjustment. So sure. shout out to uh, Doctor Christopher Black for Health Source Chiropractic. But that's where I was. Uh, I was getting my, um, you know, chiropractic adjustment, and I was talking to him, and he was telling me his daughter is, uh, she's going to become a chiropractor as well, and so she's finishing up school, and and they're getting ready to move her, and he started telling me about his. Um, experience trying to rent a U-Haul. And he said, you know, I thought I could get one right over here. And he said, "Nope, I'm having to drive like to the other side of K, which isn't far, but you know, it's probably 30 minutes out of his way to go get a truck. And he said, man, what's going on? And he said, the, the lady that, that he was dealing with said, we're having all kinds of logistical issues right now. She said that uh, right now in the state of California, in the state, he's like, you cannot get a U-Haul. You can almost not get a U-Haul at all in the state of California. He goes, 90% of the U-Haul rentals have been one way. So right. we've heard we've we've heard and we've seen people talking about people leaving California and possibly leaving New York and 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 who knows if this is just a short term trend. But I think that with this disruption that we're seeing, obviously, you know, some of these states have been more punitive with their with their measures with dealing with the virus. Some I think some people have just said, you know what? Enough's enough, and we're out of here. Right. And what got us started in this conversation
0: was how much, um, re- you know, just going back to technology, how much revenue and how much just growth these companies can experience with a fraction of the employment that an- other industries have needed in the past to grow, right? A Walmart can't grow like that. They have physical locations, they have staff that staff each of those locations, there's employees everywhere. And a technology company that does not have to grow their footprint and just can grow their sales is they can generate expanding revenues without expanding their employee base. And that's scary. It's scary about the future of employment opportunities in five years, 10 years, if it's not already right now. And if we continue to see more of this shift, particularly like you said, if we're working from home. We're not traveling as often there's less demand on um, commercial real estate potentially there's less demand on all the things that go along with that and all the people that work to you know to support a building or the the you know the type of expense that a company might have to employ um to get all the right equipment in that building et cetera you know what does this mean for our jobs market down the road and that's again I don't know that that story's really fully written either but that's a little unnerving
1: well I was you know, I, I was reading, and I, and I can finish up with this, but I was reading, um, you know, Tim Die, who uh, works, I think, at the University of Oregon, but he he has a blog called FedWatch Watch, and I started reading it, and it's, I think, he puts something out almost daily. It's ton of, it's full of information. It's pretty technical, um, but I like to read his insights, and he, he follows the movements of the Federal Reserve and, and different things, and he says, um, and he provides some commentary. And, you know, he was recently on, you know, Josh Brown's podcast and they're talking about this need for, uh, you know, stimulus and why did Trump walk away from doing the stimulus package and and won't get into the political narrative that they discussed. However, they made a point, And this is what I have continually felt myself is this environment. This is the very type of environment where income inequality and wealth inequality is exacerbated because a lot of your you know white collar jobs a lot of your people who have college degrees they're doing okay I'm not saying everybody's doing fantastic it's not what I'm saying but you know we're we're weathering we're trying to get, we're trying to limp through this thing but a lot of a lot of people that you know work you know manual labor jobs or they're in service business you know these there's those jobs have not come back or the, a lot of these places have been closed or they're being laid off. And now they're sitting at home and those are the families that really need the stimulus. They need the in, extended unemployment. They need the stimulus checks to kind of get through this thing. And, you know, we're, we're in this mode of political infighting. And so the very issues that, you know, everyone's saying that they're, they're trying to solve, they're, they're exacerbating them by not like acting on this and it's creating, bigger problems for the future. And the longer that we force businesses to figure out how to survive in this type of environment, they will figure it out without these people. And then those jobs don't come back. They're like, no, like our profit margins are fine. We survived. And then it becomes, do we want to grow? Can we scale growth? And so you see a much longer labor recovery um, as a result. And that's what I think is happening right now. Right. All right, what else we got? Well, I um I wanted to talk briefly about something for um that I found. You know, I was reading some more economic commentary from um, First Trust again, and and one of my economists, you know, is that I like is Brian Westbury. I, I I mean, I think we have a lot of similar views, but I think Brian is one of those voices out there. He's not afraid to kind of say what he thinks, and 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 he'll will look to back it up with data, but they put out talking points for September and he said in in September, the federal reserve stated expects to hold short-term interest rates near zero until two things happen. Number one, the U S unemployment rate is back to normal, which is, he's saying around 4%. And I'm like, anyone that's trying to say we have a normal unemployment rate. I think it's, it's just speculation at this point, what's Mm -hmm. going to be normal. We don't know. But number two inflation is running at or above two percent and that was a big shift that the Federal Reserve made instead of instead of saying we got a two percent target they shifted to like a range where they've allowed they, they've even said we we may allow inflation to run over you know may may go over our previous target mm-hmm. just to avoid having to raise rates too quickly and he's saying the Fed does not expect to achieve both of those goals full unemployment and inflation at or above two percent until 2024. So one of the motivations is obviously to commit a near zero interest rate environment so that, um, to incentivize risk-taking. So we want to get people, um, you know, to, to disincentivize people from just sitting in cash. And I think this is kind of going back. If you remember back to financial crisis times, um, how, how many people are like, man, I'm getting nothing on my cash in the bank. And at what point is it, is it, more painful to sit in cash than it is to, you know, potentially have money at risk in the market.
0: So there's not as much competition for stocks as there used to be, right? Um, even 15 years ago, if you could get a reasonable bond interest and you could get uh, more, um, let's say, stable price movement from a bond and 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 make three, four, five, six percent then some people would choose that versus having a potentially higher return in a stock that's going to have offer um, more periods of extreme volatility. And so as the bond interest rate continues to fall, it's much more difficult to make any real money. Um, I, I guess I said interest above inflation in high quality bonds then the appetite to go, move into stocks can grow, right? Because there's just not as much competition for those dollars as there used to be. And I think that's the Fed's point, right? It's to stir economic activity. Um, it punishes, in some cases, people with a lower risk tolerance that want to earn a reasonable return without taking the type of uh, price risk that they can in a stock. And um, over time, as those pri- you know bond prices have continued to fall in, it has probably pushed more people into stocks than they may otherwise want, you know, than they may
1: otherwise choose to be. So it's probably working. What do you think? I think it's going to create an environment where people need to be extremely clear about risk versus reward, you know, because um, obviously we all understand that 2% is, is no fun when you think you can get 3% and 3% is no fun when you think you can get 5%. But when you kind of default everything down to zero as your starting point, it's like, well, what, what additional amount of risk? And I, when I say risk, we all think about downside risk. There's risk to the upside too, right? I well, you mean the, the market could go up and you could, you could be rewarded, but it's, so I should probably say volatility, what mm-hmm. additional amount of volatility Can you accept? And and this is where I think, you know, markets like this really distort a lot of things. And one of them being is people um, getting further and further out on a limb than they may be comfortable with because they're seeing, you know, the rewards happen. Obviously, lots of stuff happening right now. The Fed's propping up, you know, the markets. They're being extraordinarily accommodative. We're going to get more stimulus. We don't know who's going to pass it. That's the that's the big thing. We don't know if we're going to see a Biden administration and Biden administration is going to pass the Pelosi's package, which was a three trillion dollar spending bill. Or if we're going to see, you know, Trump back in office, and and it doesn't matter if Trump is reelected, they're going to sign a stimulus package because they can't just prolong. We believe, yeah, they will pass something, right? So, you know, we're too close to the election, and everything is hyper political. But but I think Trump wants to pass something, uh, and this is one point, and and I'll finish up with we still may see something, but one one topic that's come to to the forefront again is they now have this Supreme court seat uh, confirmation hearings. And I think McConnell is basically telling Trump behind closed doors, Hey, do you want me to work on, you know, this confirmation or do you want me to continue dealing with this? He said, because I I can't do both in, you know, a 20 day time period. So I think the, the prize for the Republicans is going to be that Supreme court seat. And, um, you know, people can agree or disagree with that, but I think that that's just the political nature of where it's at. So, you know, what I think, you know, to answer your question, I think we're, we're kind of in a similar environment that we were back at the end of the, the financial crisis. Obviously not the same, but I think people are going to have to be willing if they want to see their money have real returns, net of inflation. They're going to have to be going into assets that can actually provide that. And I don't think that's going to be cash.
0: Yeah, we'll see what the we'll see what next year brings um, for returns. There, there's Next year, some, you
1: mean like next week? <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> I mean, there there will be bright spots in the economy. the the You know, the concern we have is that there's fewer sectors of, of our economy that deliver bright spots, and there are some sectors that have been um, hit harder uh, over this past year through whether whether it's COVID restrictions or just the natural um, evolution of a sector uh, that we're seeing less and less. Um, opportunities, so um, I think understand where how you're invested and where your risk tolerances are and preferences, and um, you know be diligent
1: in sticking to your plan. Absolutely. So, for those of you who made it through with us, uh, thank you as always for listening. Uh, find us on online. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Spotify. Give us a note. uh, Shoot us an email. We can email us at themoneyhuddle at vcplanning.com. We'd love to get your feedback. We'd love to hear topics you'd like us to discuss on the show. And as always, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time.